0: Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to BAFTA. Thank you for coming. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. It sounded like you did. Um, if you were as gripped as I was, then you will be delighted to learn that uh, Making a Murderer Part 2 launches on Netflix on October the 19th. So uh, cancel all social engagements now for that. Well, two or three days. Um I'm delighted now to welcome to the stage for a Q&A uh, writers, directors, and executive producers Laura Richardi and Maury Demos. Uh, so, how did this second series come about, and what story were you trying to tell?
1: <clears throat> well, we knew at the end of part one that we'd left viewers with questions, um, and we certainly believed that the story itself wasn't over. Um, we, like others, I think, were sort of tracking the response to part one, and. Um, Knew that people were still interested in the story. And we learned in January of 2016 that Kathleen Zellner had taken Stephen Avery's case. So, um, and we knew that, you know, Stephen maintained his innocence, Brendan maintained his innocence, and that they're both fighters, you know, that they were going to take it to the next level. So we spoke with Laura Nyrider and Steve Drizzen, who you see in this episode who represent Brendan Dassey and knew that um, they were continuing to challenge his conviction, his sentence in federal court. And we also reached out to Kathleen Zellner and um, tried to negotiate access with her. So once we knew that Stephen was on board with us continuing to tell the story, the family was on board, and all the lawyers were on board, um, we were back on board.
0: You open up in that episode with all of the, the media coverage. Um, how did that affect your work? Because obviously that wasn't happening when you were making the first series.
2: Well, I think, um, you know, as soon as we started filming part two, it was very evident to us that it wasn't just about going back to Manitowoc County and picking up where we left off, because the world that we were documenting had, had changed and was very much affected by part one. And so we needed to find a way, um, you know, to set the context for where this next phase of the story was going to take place. So um, it was it was important to us to to pick up with the launch of the series because it really does affect what you see play out over the next ten episodes. Um, but in particular, you know, how how the sort of mass interest in this case affected our work. Um, I think the biggest way it affected our work is that um, you know, we, we couldn't so much take our time as we had in part one. Um, you that know, was no,
0: 10 years and this obviously was
2: three. It's, yeah, or two and three quarters really. We didn't start until June of 2016. So um, you know, we did our last shoot in July of 2018. Um, so you know, no one seemed to mind that they were watching a story that had happened seven years prior with part one, but that was not going to fly this time. So we had to find a way to do the same sort of intimate, in-depth, layered storytelling, and yet be almost as current as the news. Um, you know, we'll be coming out October 19th. Our last shoot, as I said, was July of this year. So you're you're almost caught up to the moment. Um,
0: and the implication from from that episode was that Catherine Zellner. Came on board, took the case, having seen your documentary. Did that? Does that in any way compromise the story you're trying to tell? In that she might want to, for example, be a star in the show or to affect the outcome? Did you have to be careful in your dealings with with her?
1: You know, as there's a title card in this episode that that you know indicates that Kathleen is the winningest. Private post-conviction attorney in the United States. She's um, she's incredibly accomplished um, as a civil litigator and as a post-conviction attorney. She's made millions of dollars um, in her practice. She's had you know she's taken her share of high-profile cases. She's very media savvy. So um, you know. All we know, really, is what she told us her motivations for participating in the series were. And none of it was about, you know, the fact that this was a high-profile case, as as she articulated to us. She's high-profile anyway. Yeah, she's high-profile anyway. Um, So, I mean, what we show here is what she explained to us, which was she had a client, Ryan Ferguson, whose conviction she had gotten overturned. He brought her attention to this story. He said, you know, there's this series on Netflix you should check out. Ryan himself had a co-defendant who he believed was very much like Brendan Dassey. He was quite limited. He had given a confession to the police. And so Ryan said, you know, check it out. There's some parallels. Kathleen watched Making a Murder, um, And what she talked about with us was um, seeing Stephen's reaction in the courtroom to the reading of the verdicts in 2007 and um, just believing in him him from that moment. Um, And the other thing that she said to us is that she thought there was an injustice in terms of what she had seen documented, and she said that she doesn't tolerate bullying. And what she thought she witnessed um, in watching the documentary was an example of bullying.
0: assume that we're going to come on to the, in future episodes, to the Brendan case. Um, Can you just say, that? so that's one extra level of complexity on top of the first series. Can you clarify, I suppose, how part one and part two are going to differ story-wise?
2: Well, in part one, we were very much, you know, our goal was to give viewers the experience of being an accused in the American criminal justice system. You know, we had read about Stephen Avery. When his story made the front page of the New York Times, um, he was a DNA exoneree charged in a new crime. That in itself was something we had never heard of. So it was his particular circumstance that we latched onto, and we wanted to journey through the system with him and take viewers on that journey. So, you know, in part two, it's really the experience of being convicted, trying to fight. To prove your innocence from behind bars, and what are you up against? What are your advocates up against? What it, what, it, what avenues can you pursue? Um, and what's interesting is that Brendan's attorneys, Laura Nyreiter and Steve Drizen, they are they have taken Brendan's case out of the Wisconsin state court system, and they are arguing in federal court. And Kathleen's approach is, in in many ways, the total opposite. She is back to the she's trying to get back into court at the county level. Um, and using evidence to do so. So it was a, you know, an opportunity to take viewers into what to us was really a very unknown part of the process and in talking to viewers about you know, what's next for these guys seemed to be a very unknown sort of black hole about the criminal justice system. So it seemed like this opportunity to take viewers on this, on this new phase of the process. But I think what emerges as you get deeper into these episodes is that post-conviction by definition is looking back. And I mean, you see some of that playing out here, but I think viewers will have an opportunity, both with Laura and Steve, looking at what happened to Brendan, but also with Kathleen, going through each piece of evidence and going through what the prosecution what the prosecution did and didn't do and what the defense attorneys, Dean and Jerry, did and didn't do, come away with a much greater understanding of, of what you witnessed in part one. Mm. So they very much play off one another.
0: And even in those charts we saw fairly early in that episode, what we're dealing with is quite complex for, for the layperson, legal procedures, and in particularly for, for a British audience, American sure. legal procedures. How much handholding did you feel you needed to do for the viewer to just try to explain what's actually going on?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, first we had to learn it ourselves and then <laughs> try to figure out an interesting way to, to share it with viewers.
0: Because um, you, you come from a legal background yeah. originally, is that right? You yeah. were a lawyer before
1: Dr. Yeah. Um,
0: did you understand it?
1: Once it was explained to me, yeah. I did, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what was interesting is in episode 10 of part one, we had already seen, that was sort of our foray into documenting the post-conviction phase of the process for both Stephen and Brendan. We didn't give it much screen time for Stephen's post-conviction hearing, which happened in 2009, and you see a little bit of that in episode 10, but it's more about um, the outcome, the, the judge ruling, his trial court judge actually ruling against him, and him taking it up on appeal, and losing at the appellate court level, and then the state's highest court, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, refusing to even look at the case. So, and that happened to both Stephen and Brendan, The Wisconsin Supreme Court didn't look at either case. Um, And as you'll learn in a later episode with respect to Brendan's challenge to his conviction, um, when it got to the Court of Appeals, they issued what's called a per curiam opinion. Um, It wasn't clear who had written the opinion, basically. And it was only 11 pages long. And I think they maybe devoted three paragraphs to um, certain key issues in, in his case. And that, I, I think, is um, quite questionable. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was important to just understand the, the post-conviction process in the state court system, but then also be able to understand how it compared and contrasted with the federal court system because we knew from the outset we were going to be on these two different tracks with the two guys.
0: As you mentioned, you had a lot less time to make this one than the first one. Has your process as filmmakers had to adapt, and if so, how for this new series?
2: Well, for one thing, we were um, we were in post production from the get go, <laughs> so we were in post and production the entire time, um, which is quite challenging because you're trying to, you know, edit episode two hundred and one, but you haven't you know shot the story, so you don't know where it's going. So you're constantly going back and reworking and moving come things up, around yeah. and, you know, the other thing was we had no idea how many episodes we would have, you know, you're documenting things as they're unfolding. So you really, you can take educated guesses about what might happen when or, but, at, you know, the one thing we've learned is, you know, don't, don't think you know what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, there were times where this was two episodes and it was going to be four episodes and more things happened, then it was six episodes, then you're restructuring, six becomes eight, then more happens, eight becomes ten, then, you know, then you're really trying to figure out a way to, you know, stop production and get it out.
0: (laughs) Does whatever the initial impetus that made you want to look into the Stephen Avery case, does that impetus remain? Is it that's what's driven your need to discover in this series? whether that's a lust for the truth or an interest in the system. I just wonder if it's consistent.
1: I mean, his goal remains the same. You know? So we, we did choose him. He, he is our main character and you know, his want and you know, what's in the way of pursuing that goal is, you know, is really what it's about for us. So you know, when we first met him, he was a DNA exoneree charged with a new crime and you know, fighting to free himself, fighting to restore his reputation. And even though it's now you know, 13 years later almost um, and he's in a whole new phase of the process, that goal remains the same.
0: What was it like for you both to go back to Manitowoc? What sort of reception did you get there?
2: Well, what's interesting about um, part two is that unlike part one, where so much was playing out publicly, I mean, I think we had five episodes um, that covered the two trials. So that's a public space. Everything's playing out. Um, here we have two advocates, two, two sets of teams, really fighting to get back into court. So it's it's much more behind the scenes. Um, so much, m- most of our filming was either in Illinois, both, both lawyer teams are based in Illinois or on private property with the family or with friends, um, so we weren't out in public too much, um, and there were a few. There were a few you'll see in later episodes um, events at the courthouse in Manitowoc County, and those became. You know, we had to make decisions of: Were Laura and I going to go ourselves? If we went, would that change what happened there? Would the news start covering us? And you know, yeah. that would affect the scene, and that's. You know the opposite of what you're trying to do as a documentary filmmaker. You're trying to be invisible and capture what's happening. So you know there were certain days where we sent crew. You know here's what we anticipate happening. Here's what the scene's about. Here's who you should be following, and we couldn't go ourselves.
0: So there were moments when the news coverage and the media Aurora did actually get in the way of things you were trying to do. Did you have to block I it out? Say
1: Got in the way, but we just didn't want to take the chance that we would have an impact. Um, yeah, but there are there there yeah, are we had some the same
2: result differently. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, there are some major events that play out in federal court in Chicago, actually, and we were definitely there. I mean, it was a multi-camera shoot, and um, you know we were able to direct our team, which was great.
0: Yeah. Just before we get some questions from the audience, were you? as a pair, were you prepared? Were you taken aback by the reaction to the first series? Did you have an inkling that maybe it might catch light in that way or were you completely blindsided?
1: No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there really was no way to anticipate that response. You know, we're totally appreciative of it. We're blown away by it. Um, I mean, I feel overwhelmed by it, but um, it's also, you know, incredibly rewarding because we're doing the work to be seen and, We had always hoped it would spark a dialogue, and so to know that people, um, I mean, despite the fact that, you know, I mean, discourse actually connects people. You know, you you can have different points of view, people arguing about things, but that, you know, as long as we're communicating, you know, that's progress, so.
0: Absolutely, okay, let's get some questions. There are microphones about, Gentlemen, right on the side was first, and then we'll come to you. Hello. Um, there was a long list of names at the end of people that wouldn't speak to you. Do you think, I mean, uh, the, the chap questioning you, Benji, touched on it. Do you think the success of the first series hamstrung you at all in your experience of trying to make the second? Do you think it got in the way at all? I mean, we've only seen one episode, so it's hard for us to tell, but <laughs> as filmmakers, did you find that frustrating, difficult?
2: Um, I guess the short answer is no. Um, I mean, there would have been the same list at the end of part one had we known we had to show the list. Um, we we, we re- <laughs> cast a wide net um, in part one and in part two Sort of reaching out to anybody that we could think of that had firsthand experience of these events. You know, for part one, it was the '85 case, the exoneration, the Avery task force. It was many, many people. Um, and you know, of course, you can't control what, who decides to participate and who doesn't, and you respect those decisions. Um, but then there was a lot of discussion after it launched that you know we didn't try to show these people or we hadn't asked so and so, and we thought it would just be a little bit more efficient to just show who we had asked and show who had declined and so we could get on to talking about other things after the launch.
0: Uh, there was, yes, just in front of you. Hi. I loved it, by the way. It's so good. Um,
1: oh, thanks. <laughs> when,
0: when you're interviewing people, how do you get to the truth?
1: <laughs> <laughs> how much time do we have? <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I like to believe when people sit down that, you know, they are speaking their truth at least. But when when something, um, you know, when it's possible to fact check something, you know, if someone's not just speaking to their emotional experience, which you can't really fact check. Um, I mean, I guess there are certain ways that you can, but, <laughs> um, you know. You, you have the experience in the room, of the interview, and then there's the ability to to you know do the research and try to see whether or not you can corroborate what it is that they've said.
0: Do you ever work as a team? Do you ever are you ever in the room together?
2: We're often in the room together. Um, you know, season one I was I was doing all the shooting. Laura was doing all the interviewing. Um, this season we had some funding and could hire DPs. Um, so I was often there just helping fr- frame up and keep track of the, um, the questions or on certain occasions we'd be splitting up doing multiple shoots on the same day, in which case I would do interviewing as well.
0: Sorry, I interrupted. Um, <laughs> yes, down the front here and then we'll go to you. Yes, hello. Why don't you tell me how you felt about the um, allegations by the prosecution that you were in some way biased and had uh, left out key evidence from the documentary?
1: Um, Well, you know, what's interesting about what was said is the person was accusing us of of doing that, that the the motivation was to essentially deceive our viewers. And um, you know, we know that's meritless and, in fact, ridiculous. Um, you know, we devoted 10 years of our lives to telling the story. We always considered paramount the integrity of the project. So, um, you know, and as a storyteller, um, especially the way we approach telling the story, we treat it as a narrative documentary and at the center of that is drama. And, you know, what is drama but conflict? so why would we try to undermine the conflict and you know, make Ken Kratz's case look weaker? I mean, I think we did him a favor, frankly, in part one um, by you know, trying to, to bring to the forefront, because he's very convoluted when he speaks, by the way, um, you know, trying to make his points clear and concise and compelling. And if you were to go and you know look back at his press conferences, he says himself. I mean, in, in 201, you see here, he says, you know, because Stephen's DNA is found on the key and the blood is in the car, game over. You know, this guy did it. So, you know, he had plenty of opportunity to say what his most compelling evidence was. We believed we included all of it. Um, I see, you know, that in his closing, he mentions the hood latch, but. It was never mentioned in a pretrial press conference. It was a blip at the trial. Um, And so, you know, and in fact, what's interesting is because we were documenting Kathleen Zellner trying, as she says, to deconstruct the state's case, and she takes each piece of physical evidence and tries to test it, essentially. um, As you'll see in a later episode, one of those pieces of evidence is the hood latch. And, you know, the inquiry of herself and her DNA consultant is, you know, it's it's a forensic science approach. It's quite objective. And so, you know, I think by the end of episode two, no one's worried about the hood latch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yes, lady over here.
2: Hi there, I also really, Love the first series, and I'm really excited to see the rest of this, so thank you. Um, my question is, um, we saw a little bit in um, that episode the reaction from Teresa Holbeck's Friends and Family. Um, did that take you by surprise? Did you have anticipate that that might be how they might react to the first uh, series in terms of their... Um, uh, kind of uh, upset, I suppose, at, at, at opening the case up and, and, and trying to uh, disprove that he was guilty or innocent or whatever. Um, no, I wouldn't say I was surprised by that response. Um, you know, I mean, we had reached out to the Halbach family for part one. We had waited a few months out of respect. You know, our first day of shooting was Stephen's preliminary hearing in December of 05. And, you know... The prosecution presented a pile of evidence and you know everything was fresh and you know we thought the last thing they needed was us to be asking them to partake in a documentary. So we waited a few months and wrote a letter to them, which was how we approached every subject in part one. Um, and they eventually declined, but we had ended up having coffee with Mike Hallbuck to discuss, you know, tell him more about ourselves, what we were interested in, why we were doing it. Um, and you know, during that that coffee, you know, he basically said the same thing. You know, we believe you're just trying to make money off of this tragedy. You know, at the time, we were film students taking on thousands and thousands of dollars of debt with no real thought that anybody would buy this. You know, we were going to put it up on YouTube if we couldn't figure out a way to sell it. So um, we knew that that was their position. Um, we We had hoped that when it came out and they saw, you know, The enactment of what we had said we were trying to do, you know, they may feel differently. I mean, that comment came out before it had come out, just the announcement of it. Um, I don't think they've made a public comment since. So, you know, I can't pretend to know how they're actually feeling.
0: Uh, Yes, the gentleman in the glass is there, and then we'll come on in. You've you sort of mentioned this before, where you you talked about the fact that for the second series you, you were able to send out crews. You're obviously in the position this time round of having a presumably significantly greater budget to make the series,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and obviously that was must have been advantageous for you, it's just on a purely practical level. But I wondered whether, what impact you think it had on you as journalists, as program makers, as creative people? Do, do you think it affected your, your passion, your desire, your hunger? How, how did it affect you in pursuing the story?
2: Um, well, I mean, you're right that at a practical level, especially trying, you know, in part one, it's true we had no money, but what we had was time, which was an incredible asset and allowed us to move to Manitowoc County for 18 months, so we ourselves could be on the ground you know, hearing things at a moment's notice and off with our cameras and try to, you know, create that fabric that is the story. And, you know, now here we were living in Los Angeles trying to document a story happening in the Midwest. So it was critical to us to have, we had local crews, um, you know, we have breaking news in this story several times where something happens and you need to be out there within hours Um, and, you know, it would take us at least eight hours. To get a ticket, get to the airport, and get there. Um, so there was that practical level. Um, but I think, you know, even though this was a shorter period of time, I, we were shooting for just over two years, that's still quite a lot of time to be shooting. So we were on the ground, um, we were in the Midwest quite often, um, and that allowed us to sort of introduce our crews to our subjects so that, you know, they could eventually have the same sort of intimacy, you know, with Dolores Avery, say, um, if we couldn't be there on a day, you know, she suddenly is gonna have to go to the hospital. You know, do we have somebody who could go and get in the car with her? And they've already met and have a rapport, so that's a trusted situation. Um, but, you know, the I, I think then it's about, Yes, we had the ability to get all the material in different ways. Sometimes we were there, sometimes we weren't. But then it's about, you know, working with the material together back in the edit room. And that was still, we had a bigger team, but it was still the two of us at the helm of it. So that passion was still there.
0: I think we probably have time for one more. There was someone down here, yeah. Let's just wait for the microphone.
1: Hi. Did you have any expectation after the first series that maybe Stephen Avery and Brendan Bassey would have been freed from jail, or did you expect a second series to carry on? What we expected at the end of part one was that they would keep fighting. I mean, Stephen himself says that. I, I, um, you know, at the end of part one, he, he says, you know, I want my life. They keep taking it. And I'm going to keep fighting. And you know, part of what his then fiance um, Sandy Grayman explains is that um, you know by 2011 Stephen had lost all of his attorneys. Yet he still wanted to challenge his conviction, so he took it upon himself. I mean, he's um, at best semi-literate, and you know, but as you see at the end of part one, you know, he. He got possession of his case file, which you know was voluminous, and was going through the case file himself and looking for ways to challenge his conviction. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we understood um, how incredibly difficult it was by the end of part one to, to try to get your conviction overturned. So we really didn't think that was likely to happen, but we, we knew that he would keep fighting. And we did think that should that happen we, we felt like we wanted to be there on the day of release. So that was important to us.
0: Good, that is all we have time for. Thank you all very much for coming and thank you to our panel.
1: Thank you.
2: Hello.